Well, good morning again. Uh, it is good to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, we are continuing in our study of the book of 1 Samuel, and so we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 9. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, the passage can be found in the Bibles in the chairs in front of you on page 231, 231 of 1 Samuel. That's what we'll be looking at. So, um, so Samuel, uh, we could look at Samuel as three different parts, three different sections. Um, we can look at it by focusing on three main characters. The first character is that of Samuel that we've seen in the first eight or so chapters. And am I getting feedback? Are y'all hearing feedback? I'm getting a little bit. Awesome. Um, so, um, so the first eight chapters or so focus on the, the person of Samuel. That's what we've seen so far. And then the, kind of the middle to the end of the book, the main character, the protagonist, is going to be David. And we all know David's coming, and we're waiting for that day to come when we'll start to focus on David. But, but in between Samuel and David, we have Saul. We have Saul, this new character that is introduced in chapter 9. He advances the narrative. The, the story is told through the lens of Saul. He becomes a, a prominent character in the life of Israel, and he comes about in this chapter. We see him arising. He's arising because the people, if you remember from last week, has requested of God to give them a king. But not just any king. They want a king like all the other nations. And so Samuel, excuse me, the people of God the people of God are turning away from God's ways. They're looking to the nations to find help, to, to be a model for how they are to live. And so Saul is going to be raised up. But even as the people of God are turning away from God, and even as Saul is being raised up to be the next king, to be the first king of Israel, to be the next leader amongst the people, what we see in this passage is that God is still at work. That he has not abandoned his people. He has not left them to their own devices, but he is going to continue to lead them. And so let's go ahead and read 1 Samuel chapter 9. We'll read the entirety of the passage. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zoor, son of Becheroth, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulder upwards, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in high honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? 
For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet with him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out towards them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for the donkeys that were lost <clears throat> excuse me, three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young men and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, Put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set, it, set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept it is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop there, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we come before your word this morning and we acknowledge our need. We are in need of your grace. 
We are in need of your help. We are in need of your leading. And so we ask that you would provide it now. That you would help me so that the words of my mouth would honor you. That you would help all of us so that the meditations of our hearts would please you. That you would help us as we look at this word and as we follow you all in all of our ways. That we would follow you as our leader, as our king, and as our God. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So stealing home is probably the rarest thing that you might see in a baseball game. It doesn't happen very often. In all my years of playing, in all my years of watching, in all my years of coaching, I've only ever seen it with my own eyes live, be it on TV, at the game, in a game that I'm playing, I've seen it happen once. It just never happens. It never happens stealing home, right? And when it does happen, it shows up all over YouTube and ESPN keeps playing it over and over again because it's so very rare. Stealing home just never happens. And because of how rare it is to attempt to steal home or even to be successful, I, I found it very odd that my coach in college had us practice stealing home. In fact, we practiced it with, with a lot of frequency. It, it was really odd. We would do all the normal things every college baseball program would do. We practice fielding and batting practice and outfielders shagged flies and, and pitchers threw bullpens. We did all those sorts of things, but, but we also practiced stealing home. And I'm not talking about like when the ball squirts past the catcher or the pitcher throws it to the backstop. I'm talking like when they break, as soon as the pitcher kicks and they slide to the front of the plate just outside of the catcher who's leaping forward, diving forward to try and tag him, that kind of steal. We would practice that. And I remember with my teammates, we would sit there and every time Coach Strap would tell us that we were going to practice stealing home, we would we'd kind of roll our eyes and we'd kind of laugh and we'd be like, this guy, he doesn't know what he's doing. Like, he doesn't know what he's talking about, stealing home. Why would we ever take the time? It, it felt like we have four hours of practice and he doesn't want to let us out after three and a half hours. So he's going to make us do something we'll never do. So we laughed and we made fun of him. He really doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know how to lead us. That was our perception. That's what we thought about Coach Strap and his training of us to steal home. That is until one spring afternoon. We were playing Armstrong Atlantic, and it was the bottom of the last inning. We were down by eight runs, and we came back, and we scored eight runs to tie the game. And we had the bases loaded with two outs, and the man was up at the plate, and Joel was on third base. He was running. I remember who it was, Joel. Joel Petty. He was the only other left-handed hitter on the team, me and Joel. So I remember he was there, and he's at third, bases loaded, bottom of the last inning, score is tied, and he stole, and we won the game. It was amazing. It was glorious. I remember I was getting ready to put my catcher's gear on because I figured we were going into extra innings. And so as he steals home, we're all running out and I'm dragging equipment because it's half on and we're jumping up and down and we're celebrating and we're rejoicing and this was something we had never seen before and we won the game. That's right, it was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing, it was just like that. And after all the celebrating died down, after all the rejoicing, after all the calm, after we had left the field, I remember realizing that Coach knew exactly what he was doing. 
Coach knew exactly what we needed. That all those times that I thought that Coach didn't know what he was doing and that he wasn't a very good leader and he was just filling time, he was actually leading quite well. He was leading and we never really knew it. And that's what this passage shows us about God. Yes, the people have rejected him one chapter before. And yes, they've asked for a king like all the other nations. And yes, Saul is going to be raised up as the king over Israel. And yet, though it may look like God has stepped back, that God has removed his hands, God is actually very intimately leading his people. That's what this passage shows us, that in subtle ways, God is still leading his people. That their perceptions, that their desires were all wrong. That God knows exactly what the people needed, and he's going to lead them. And we see his leading through his hand of providence. We see it through God's providence. Now, providence is a nice theological word. And providence is described in the Westminster Shorter Catechism as God's most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. God's providence is his knowing and directing and guiding and caring for his word, world. And what we see is God's hand of providence throughout this passage. His hand of providence in the everyday things of life and in the everyday people of life. Specifically, the details surrounding this lost donkey. Now, as I was reading through it, those first like 20 or so verses, I, I imagine that maybe some of you had the same thought that I had when I was reading this passage earlier in the week, which is like, <laughs> what's the deal with the donkey? <laughs> like, why does Samuel devote so much time to this, this lost donkey, right? The previous chapter ended with the, the rejection of God and the call for a king, and now we have these seemingly inconsequential details of life. Right? I mean, a large chunk of the chapter, roughly about 20 verses, is devoted to this particular thread of narrative, a lost donkey and the search for it. And these details would definitely seem superfluous to us if not for an interjection, for a pause in the narrative. In verses 15 through 17, we have a pause in the narrative, and what we have now is, is God speaking. You see it. It says, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He is who shall restrain my people. So you see this little interjection, these three verses, verses 15 through 17, they're not necessarily advancing the narrative, but they are necessary for understanding the narrative. You see, it becomes very clear to us that for why the narrator spent the 14 previous verses talking about a lost donkey. It becomes very clear that God is using this event and he is orchestrating these details to bring about the leader of Israel. 
And it's not just the seemingly inconsequential normal events of life that God's using. He's also using normal, everyday people. I mean, when Saul is ready to turn back, who is it that prompts him to continue to go on? A nameless servant. And when they go searching for the prophet, when they go looking for Samuel, who is it that instructs them where to find him? These nameless women at the well. Just everyday people going about their day, prompting him, directing him, showing him where he is to go. And what we're supposed to see is that these aren't chance meetings. These events aren't happenstance. These conversations aren't at random because God said, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. You see, we see throughout the thread of these normal events how God is actually using them to send Saul to Samuel. He's sending Saul through a lost donkey and the prompting of a servant and the directions of women at the well. God is providentially working through the everyday, the easily ignored, the things that are forgotten to bring about his plan. And so we have to ask ourselves, does does our view of God and what he is doing in this world, does our understanding of God have room for him to be working in these sorts of ways? You see, it's easy to believe and see how God is working in in big events, right? In, In those occasions that change the direction of nations. It's easy to see how God might be at work in those times. And it's easy to believe that God has concern for the strong and the powerful and the monumental, but but the day-to-day, the mundane, a lost donkey. I mean, do, do you believe, do we live as though we believe that God's involved in those matters? In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said that even the hairs of your head are all numbered. The hairs of your head. I mean, isn't that amazing? Even the hairs of your head. God knows you with such intimacy that he's numbered the hairs of you. I mean, talk about the seemingly insignificant. And yet, what we may discount as minor, as small as insignificant, God is intimately involved in. I remember meeting this woman in college. She attended a church that my friend had grown up in. And I met this woman, she was elderly, I I don't remember her name, I have no recollection of what she looks like, I really only remember one thing from our conversation, she could walk in and I would have no idea who she was, but I remember this, she told us that when she would drive to the grocery store, she was elderly, when she would drive to the grocery store and as she started to get near to the grocery store and started to pull into the parking lot, she started praying. And what she would pray for was that God would open up a parking spot for her. And I was a brand new Christian. I'm like, really? Like, that's what you pray for? What about lost people? What about cancer? What about, you know, a parking spot? But she was a little elderly. And she wasn't incapacitated enough to have one of those tags, those handicap parking tags. And so, so she knew that little bit of extra walking It was hard on her knees and her muscles, and it wore her out. And so she prayed. 
Now, I have no idea how often God granted her her request and gave her those spots that she asked for. But I do remember walking away thinking that this woman has an understanding of God and his work in this world that I, I have never even conceived of. That, that she believes that God is involved in the details of our lives. That he cares about changing a diaper. And he's involved in those chance conversations that we have. And he knows the significant and he knows the small. That's the kind of God that we follow. I mean, that's the kind of God that we want to follow, isn't it? The God who, I mean, like, let's think about our lives for just a second. We are not the monumental. We are not the significant. As far as the world is concerned, like, we are, we're the ignored, right? We will be forgotten. And God cares about you. He's involved in your life. That is beautiful. That is wonderful. Right? This is how God leads through providence. But God doesn't just show his leading through his providence. He also shows it through his authority. Notice, even as Saul is set apart and he's raised up, God never relinquishes his authority. We see this in a couple of ways. The first is how Saul is referred to. I don't know if you noticed it, but Saul's never called king. Did you notice that? He's not called the king. In fact, in verse 16, what he's called is the prince. And next chapter, in chapter 10, in verse 1, he's called prince twice. Now, now to us, this might seem like a, a, a difference without distinction or a distinction without however that phrase goes, right? We, it's like, what's the big deal? Prince, king, right? To our ears, it's still royalty, right? Prince is just the next one in line. But, but actually, this word, this word is speaking more in, in generic terms. Prince is a fine way to translate it, but it's speaking more generically of leader. And I think the reason why God is using this term is because it's a way of communicating to his people that though they've asked for a king, and though Saul will one day be called king, that God hasn't given up his kingship. That God is still the one who has authority, even over this new leader. That God hasn't abdicated his authority in any way. God still has authority. And we see it in how he refers to Saul, but we also see it in the way that he speaks of the people of whom Saul will be over. In verse 16, God refers to Israel as my people three times. Did you see it? You shall anoint Saul, him, to be prince over my people. He shall save my people. I have seen my people. So what is this telling us? It's telling us that though Saul is going to lead, whatever authority he may yield, Israel is still the Lord's. That the authority that Saul is given is that it is given. His authority is ultimately in subjection to God's. And friends, that's what we have to remember. That every authority is in subjection to God's. Whether we're talking about Saul or David, or the authorities in this world, or even the authority in the church. All authority is ultimately in subjection to God's authority. This is why in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says of Jesus that God has highly exalted him and has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, what that's telling us, y'all, is that, that there is only one name by which knees will, will bow. And there is only one name by which tongues will confess the Lord, and that name is not Saul, and it's not Samuel, and it's not Caesar, and it's not President. It is Jesus. And we will praise his name, and we will declare that he is the Lord because he is the Lord. He's the Lord over all. You know, that's why we follow him. That is why we follow him. Because God continues to lead. He leads by exercising his authority, his ultimate authority. And he leads by his hand of providence. But there's one more thing from this passage that we see about God's leading. And that's that he leads through his compassion. Now, I want you to think for a moment. I want you to think about how you would respond to someone who's rejected you. Maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend who broke up with you, and they didn't just break up with you, but they broke up with you over text. <laughs> like, don't do that. Um, that's, that's, like, really bad. Um, but anyway, uh, maybe it's the boss who fired you, or maybe it's the friend who's a trusted confidant who betrayed your trust. When you think about that person, okay, even if, uh, so we've, we've probably all got people that would run, come to our minds when we hear those things. And even if you don't have a specific person, you have the hypothetical person, okay, so you, you've got that in your mind. When you think about them, when you see them on the street, what, what kind of emotions would well up inside you? Anger? Bitterness? Frustration? Right, we would want them to feel our pain, the pain that we felt, wouldn't we? And we would want them to know the sadness that we've known, wouldn't we? Right? And so if we would feel that, it, it's not hard for us to imagine that maybe God's response to the people who rejected him would be similar, wouldn't it? I mean, the people have rejected God, so we would expect that he would come with anger and wrath and exile, right? God would use his ultimate authority, and he would use his hand of providence to bring fire and judgment upon his people, right? We could imagine that. But look what he says to Samuel in verse 16. You shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, for he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Did you hear that? God heard Israel's rejection and their wanting a king like the nations, but that did not cause him to go deaf to, the, to their cries. And he had seen their idolatry, but that did not cause him to go blind to their needs. No, Israel's rebellion has not dried up God's grace. Even though the rise of Saul is birthed out of a sinful request, though Saul will go astray, God is using him, even him, to protect Israel from his enemies. I mean, isn't that amazing to think about? It's not wrath and judgment and destruction, though that would have been warranted. Even though Israel comes rejecting him, he comes with compassion and mercy and grace. And it's because of that compassion that we see Israel is supposed to follow God's leading. And we are too. 
Because after all, God's shown us this compassion. Now, I imagine that as we read these narratives, as we read these Old Testament stories, as we see these heroes coming about like Samuel, we want to resonate with the hero, don't we? I mean, we just naturally do it. With all the stories that we watch and all the stories that we hear, we, we naturally resonate and we gravitate towards the hero, the person who stands firm for what is truth, the one who is pious, the one who is right, the one who is strong, right? That's who we want to be like, who we resonate with, Samuel. But when we examine our hearts and we listen to our words, and we observe our actions, more often than not, we're not like the hero. We're like the people. We're like the crowd. We're like the nation in need of God's compassion. And friends, that's what he's shown us. Because in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were the ungodly, while we were rebelling against the creator of the universe, Christ died for us, for you. For me, for even me. God's grace isn't shut up. His compassion hasn't dried up, but instead he pours out his grace and he showers his people with compassion. And y'all, that's why we follow him. That's why we follow him, because he leads with a hand of providence. And he leads with a powerful authority and he leads with an incredible compassion. God has not stopped leading. He is leading even today. And so we follow him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have not removed your hand of providence and you have not abdicated your place of authority and you have not withheld your compassion, but instead you have exercised them all and you have done so for our good and you have done so for the greatness of your name. And so we praise you and declare that you are our king. You are the one who leads us, and you are the one who has saved us, and you are the one that we follow. And so we ask that you would equip us today and all of our days to follow you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. And God's people said, Amen. I'll invite our ushers to come forward, and we'll take this morning's tithes and offerings.